before the goodness starts flowing, I want to welcome you to the STR Sisterhood, real life stories from real life women in the short-term rental industry. I'm your host, Stacey St. John, ex-corporate girl who discovered how to replace her six-figure salary through short-term rentals and who now has the pleasure of helping others do the same. On this show, we talk to real women in the short-term rental space about their journeys and how they've managed to turn their STR dreams into reality. If you're an ambitious woman who's looking to build a successful short-term rental business, you are in the right place, sister. This podcast is brought to you in part by InHaven. You know, it seems obvious, but it's true. Guests feel more comfortable and are more likely to recommend your property when they feel like they're well taken care of. InHaven is your one-stop shop for hosting essentials like hypoallergenic sheets, luxe towels, durable kitchenware, and oh, my friends, do they have all the decorative accents. And all of InHaven's products will make your property feel like it's a true getaway for anyone that stays. Now, InHaven also makes shopping for your rental so much fun because it's so easy and way more affordable than driving all over town. Plus, sign up is free for all short-term rental hosts. And to say thank you for listening to my podcast, you can now get $50 off your first order. All you have to do is go to inhaven.com backslash sister, start shopping, and enter the code sister at checkout to snag your 50 bucks off. All right. Thanks so much for listening. And now let's get back into the podcast. Welcome to another episode of the STR Sisterhood. I'm your host, Stacey St. John, and I'm so freaking excited to be here with you today. Thanks for inviting me into your day. Now, before we dive into today's conversation, I want to share a quote with you. And this quote says, strong women don't have attitudes. We have standards. And those words came to us from actress Marilyn Monroe. Now, in today's episode, we are talking about the good, the bad, and the ugly side of rehabbing properties. Now, you know, I love buying ugly properties and rehabbing them. And when I sat down with Aubrey Carlson, I wanted to ask her about her rehabbing experiences. And you're going to notice that this might feel like a little bit of a different Uh, tone to the episode because Aubrey shares with us a lot of the challenges that she went through. I never, ever want you to listen and feel discouraged, but instead what I'd love for you to do is listen to the challenges that Aubrey shares and learn from her experiences. Take away nuggets of the heartache and headache that she has had And so that you can put things in place as you are rehabbing properties to avoid those same headaches. So with that, let's go ahead and dive into my conversation with Aubrey. So today we are here with Aubrey Carlson. Aubrey, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, I'm so happy to be here. This is going to be a fun conversation. Now, before we dive in, I'm curious if you could just share with our listeners a little bit about who you are and where you're located. Of course. So I'm Aubrey Carlson, and I'm currently in San Diego, California. I've lived here for eight years, and I've been active duty military as a Navy pilot for the past 10 years. So I will be be getting out of the military actually this year. So right now I'm doing like a full transition. And then my my goal for the past like five years of my time in the service has been to never write a resume. And I'm hopefully going to hit that goal. <laughs> so we'll see. Love and it. I'll be doing a Skillbridge program, which we can get into because it's actually really cool with one of my best friend's companies. And I'll be consulting with her to potentially open up a boutique hotel for her <gasps> travel brand. So yeah, that will be an upcoming month. 
How fun is that? Well, first, before we go any further, thank you for your service to our country. That is amazing. And I had no idea. I kind of have goosebumps. That is so cool. That could be a whole podcast episode in and of itself. But I tell you what, such a cool goal to never have to write a resume. I love that goal. And I have no doubt that you will achieve that. I'm curious, how did you get started in the world of short-term rentals? It was just happenstance. It was never our plan. So what happened was I didn't even think about buying a house. So we kind of just got into real estate first and then short-term rentals became kind of organic to that from our Ocean Beach property, which we can get into. So we ended up buying that Ocean Beach property because back, back in 2020, having a house near the beach, it was probably like five grand to rent a house. And then my partner, Brad, he was like, why would we rent? Why can't we just buy one? I'm like, I never even thought about that. And honestly, we didn't even have that much money. Like it took us about six months. We put in like seven offers and like we slowly were saving and probably only had like 10K in like my savings account. So, and then we had our, my TSP retirement account too that we could use, but we used that later for like a rehab. And then we did a zero money down VA loan we bought an ocean beach. You can walk to the beach in San Diego. And at that point in time, that was 790K. And the mortgage was, it's only 4,200. <laughs> so it was like cheaper than renting at the time because the rent wow. was low. Yeah. So it was kind Amazing. of like, but it was super ugly, <laughs> of course. And then from there was like started our journey. And we were very fortunate that my partner at the time ended up getting a really, really good job. He, he's had a lot of jobs. He owned a yoga studio and that's kind of how I met him. And then he sold it literally like two weeks before COVID happened. Wow. Like a blessing. <laughs> I know it's still open. Actually, the different owners bought it it's still open. It's doing well, but for him, it was very lucky. And then he was a flight instructor on the civilian side. And then he is now like a bar manager on a catamaran is a bar. So he's making like a bunch of really good money that helped us fund pretty much the whole rehab, which was awesome. And we did some other creative ways to fund that. So our plan was never to use that as a short-term rental. It's kind of like a wish list, like, oh, if we could get this up and running as a short-term rental, because you know, like it was kind of up in the air of the rental regulations in San Diego. So we all, we, what we learned, and then we just kind of like dove into education. So we don't like buying a property when there's only like one strategy and that's done us well for our out-of-state rehabs that we invest in Birmingham, Alabama, and we can get into that later for the rehabs. But we were just thinking long-term rents, mid-term rents. So those are the numbers we were running. And then when we realized, I'm like, oh, this would be a really good short-term rental and we're going to make this really nice. So then we applied and then turns out we ended up getting enough like there was no lottery in San Diego. I don't know if you're familiar with the San Diego regulations, but. I'm not. I was going to say for anyone who's listening, who's not familiar with the regulations in San Diego, talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. So they've been talking for years how they were going to do a huge crackdown. So they said they were estimating like 19,000 short-term rentals. Either that was just really off or something because only like 3,000 people applied to get one because the the license that they had were like 5,400 and then only 3,000 people applied. So we thought it was going to be a lottery system to where like, oh, this is just kind of like, we'll throw it out there. We'll see if it happens. If it doesn't, we'll do midterm or long-term. And then it happened and we're like, oh, everyone got a, like a permit. So, and then from there we're like, okay, it's go time. And it's then go time. Oh, that's so fun. Okay. So you bought this house and I do want to talk about rehabbing because this is something obviously you and I have both done and I know we've both done it locally as well as from afar. And again, that could be a whole separate set of podcast episodes, but we'll, we'll try to keep everything tight here. I am curious. So you bought this house and it sounds, sounds like you obviously were able to leverage obviously your VA loan, your military service to help you get a favorable loan product. I tell you what, if that's not good incentive for joining the military, hello, a zero down VA loan. That sounds amazing. Yeah. When 
you first started the rehab for your short-term rental, correct me if I'm wrong, you were you were living in the property. You did the rehab as you were living in it. Is that correct? Yes. We did the full rehab as we were living in it. But like when we first bought it, I mean, this is so crazy about the VA loan because we actually ended up getting money back. So we got paid to buy the property because our real estate agent at the time negotiated some, you know, seller credits. So then we got all of our earnest money back plus some more. And that, but this was just an absolute full rehab in every single way. We, there was, we didn't take the drywall out on some of the rooms, but like a lot of it was even like down to the studs on some stuff. Wow. Yeah. And how long was the process of the rehab? We bought in or we closed October like 31st, 2020. And then we were fully done. What would that be? It must have been like July 2022. Oh, wow. Okay. So it took you, took you a little bit of time. All right, cool. Yeah. Now I'm curious from your perspective, you know, what do you feel like the advantages are to buying ugly property? And I love ugly property, right? But I'm curious why you were drawn to buying an ugly property to begin with. So at the time when we were looking, we were looking for a, a little bit of like, oh, let's get our hands dirty because we just kind of wanted to do that for some reason. I don't know why. And we didn't really know that much about real estate when we were in that process. Since then, I mean, all we've been doing is educating ourselves and diving right into it. So we're like way more knowledgeable than when we started. But thank goodness we did. It gives you like just a way better starting point. It's a safer investment in my mind, which it is a safer investment, like statistically, because you're buying something and it's not at the top of the market. Because we've had one of my partner, Brad, one of his best friends, he bought way back when a turnkey place, the top of the market, and then immediately and then had to sell it because him and his partner broke up and then like was underwater. So we rather would have something we can force appreciation into. And we do that for out-of-state properties too. But now because we've done so much, we've had so many bad experiences with the out-of-state stuff, we're like, we kind of want more monkey. Um, just for short-term rentals. Sure. Yeah. You know, I think obviously that forced appreciation or the, the equity that you can rapidly build up is for me, one of the reasons why I love buying ugly properties. Another reason, and I'm curious if this impacted you as well, but there's less demand, you know, there's a certain type of, you know, clientele who is willing to do the work for an ugly property. And did you experience that? I know you mentioned you put in several offers before you were able to to snag a property. Did you find that there was less demand for the ugly ones? Yeah. So that, so that was in May, 2020 is when we started looking and I think we put in six or seven and then October 31st is when we finally closed on our property. And we were all, I was only looking in a specific market because I really wanted a beach property. And then like the day we looked outside of Pacific Beach, that's the area, which now it's like so unaffordable there. I mean, it's crazy. Ocean Beach is is unaffordable now too, but it's not as bad as Pacific Beach. But anyways, the day we found that place and it had been on the market, yeah, for probably like 40 some days versus the other ones were getting like 10 offers, you know, so. In the first day, yeah. (laughs) I also think too, if anyone is thinking about rehabbing who's listening, you know, there's also opportunity to find off-market properties that are ugly and need some love, you know? And so I just think that there are tremendous benefits of buying ugly. And I think that there are a lot of reasons for people to be hesitant and, you know, I understand that if you don't have experience with rehabbing, it can be a lot. It can be a lot for sure. I'm curious, Aubrey, you know, just based on the properties that you have rehabbed, what are some of your favorite tips for success? What have you found to be most helpful and beneficial? Ooh, yeah, that is a good question. (laughs) 
lot. There's just so much because there's, you know, like living and rehabbing it. And then there's the out of state and managing contractors. Let's talk about the living and rehabbing local first. Yeah, I what I think the biggest tip and we we learned this kind not really that quickly, probably within nine months. I mean, uh, we were doing a lot of it ourselves. And first of all, we're not contractors. I'm a Navy pilot. Brad was a yoga teacher. <laughs> like we have no experience with this. So first of all, it's not going to look as good and it might not be in code and you are wasting your time. But when you're low on money, like sometimes it is what you have to do. Like we, I took out this, the whole stone of the fireplace myself with a rotary hammer and, you know, redid the whole tile and face and drywall and everything like that, which that, but like when you're, like I said, low on money, sometimes you have to do that. We try to do the bathroom ourselves and yeah, that, that was just a no go. Like <laughs> do, but didn't uh-huh. turn out well, so well. Yeah. Like we were going to do the hot mopping ourselves for anyone that's just, you know, sealing the walk-in shower. You have to have a professional do that. So I think, and now, now that we're so busy and we're so far into real estate, we know time is money. So now we're just going to pay anyone to just even yeah. do this whole thing, like to fix like a little thing of paint. I'm going to go with someone. Yeah. It's funny, you know, that you mentioned that because I've definitely have heard different schools of thought. And I know a lot of people who, you know, want to lift up that hammer and, and do the work themselves. My whole business model has in, in the world of real estate has been built on a team-based structure. So I outsource, I find obviously skilled experts and rely on them to do the work. And because of that, it does help to accelerate our timeline, right? Mm-hmm. It can also blow up our budget, right? So there is definitely a balance there for sure. So when you were starting, did you have a timeline outlines that you and Brad wanted to be finished with this renovation? Or were you just, I don't want to say flying by the seat of your pants, but just, hey, we'll get done when we get done. What were your original thoughts on that? Yeah, it was kind of a combination of both because we wanted to do it as fast as possible. But I mean, probably over the course of it, it was like over $100,000 or more, you know, over the course of like a year and a half or more. And you know, we just didn't have it at the time. <laughs> so we just slowly chipped away at it and we just wanted to do it as fast as possible, but as like practical as possible. And then we always had the intention of moving into a, a new house. So a lot of people, you know, think it's going to, now that also like fixes a lot of the decisions. Like this isn't our forever home. So you don't need to like splurge on every little thing. I mean, we still made it luxury and really nice, but there's like some things like, okay, like make it practical and efficient for guests, you know, so built around like tenants living there, Airbnb guests. So that was a learning point too. And not to get like, you know, too stuck on decisions or something like spending two weeks to figure out paint colors. Oh, you know. (laughs) Right. For the people that you have hired out of state, have you found it to be a different experience, rehabbing out of state, you know, finding contractors. Talk to me about your experience rehabbing from afar versus there locally. Yeah, it's actually been like 180 degree difference because we live here in California and we did, we actually did a real estate course, which was awesome for military people. It was like a six month course. And that open us to a whole network of real estate investors in Southern California and around the world, actually white feather. And then, so we used those people's contractors. They were already vetted. We've seen their projects and like these, you know, are really experienced real estate investors and we grabbed their contractors. So, and they do nice stuff and they do stuff by the code and they're licensed and they're all this kind of stuff. When you go to Alabama or you go anywhere in the South, or the Midwest, you're not going to run into that. And it, it's really hard to not physically be there and try to vet these people. We thought we found good people, but then 
it, we still actually haven't even found a good contractor. We have a lot of good subs now, but like a, a licensed contractor, we have not found a good one in Alabama. Uh, so if anyone knows anyone, that'd be great. We'd love to do more work out there. We're just so scared after several, we did three homes, but we can get into that. I'm curious from your perspective, when, you know, we're paying someone, when you're paying someone to do the work, how much do you dive into the line by line, nitty gritty details of their estimate? Or are you having contractors walk through, see the project and say, I'll do it for X? Are you asking for a line-by-line breakdown of the project or are you just looking at the bottom line cost? Oh, God. Yeah, that's a good question. So also, I will say when we, the first rehab we did was the one in Ocean Beach where we lived in and we kind of felt imposter syndrome because it's really hard when you do your first couple. You like feel like the contractor knows more than you or if you have questions, you you know what I mean? And you don't want to get, so we learned from that because and then we did the others and we did those with hard money loans and you need line by line items for the hard money lenders to fund the rehab. And we weren't as like strict with those contractors because we felt like we were frauds because we didn't know enough, if you know what I mean, have the business mindset of it fully. Now we've done done three of those. So we feel like we can be very strict and very like upfront with contractors and know exactly how we're going to do it. But what I like about the hard money loans and we are doing that is they require a very detailed estimate. So the contractors require to do that. So we haven't done an estimate that was just like one number. Yeah. And then now that we have experience of doing it, we, cause if it's your first one, you're not really going to know. But I will say on all three of ours in Alabama, they were severely underbid and that put us into like a painful position. Oh boy. You know. So I want to go back to the comment that you just made that you didn't dive deep into the numbers because you felt like fraud. So I want to ask you a little bit about that. Was it, was it because you didn't feel like you were equipped with the right questions to ask? What made you feel like a fraud? And is it just because you had a lack of experience? And then secondarily, how did you push through that? Yeah, I think it was the lack of experience because experience really gives you confidence and putting yourself in, you know, uncomfortable situations gives you and getting through that and surviving that gives you confidence. Not having any of those experiences, we just didn't have the confidence we should have. And we should have probably faked some confidence (laughs) to be more strict with them, you know? So we learned from that, but now we move past it. And we have a lot of like mentors and real estate investors we would always just go ask questions to. And that was extremely helpful. So having people you can ask questions to, like hard questions, like how do I handle the situation? If you don't, then it'd be really hard to get through a bad rehab or, or if you think yeah. something's off, you need to like be able to bounce off ideas and stuff. Yeah. So the projects or the project that was underbid, talk to us a little bit about how that played out. When did you discover it was underbid? Let me ask you that. Let's see. So we did three at the same time with the same contractor Oh boy. That was a that was a rookie mistake. So we made a huge mistake on that one. We thought we vetted him. Turns out he was awful. <laughs> but like we haven't lost that much money yet. Uh so we have two of them. One of them is a short-term rental. One of them is a medium-term rental slash short-term rental. Right now I actually have short-term rental guests checking in today for that one. It just goes on and off right now. That one's a whole different story because that that has a another story attached to it that might require a lawsuit for the neighbors. So that's just, Oh boy. It's a whole thing. The other one we just recently sold because we were going to hold on to it. And, but then if so many problems kept coming up with it and I'm like, I don't, we knew we could sell it. That was another strategy of ours is, you know, being able to like get out of a deal and be able to sell it and not lose money or at least break even. 
So when stuff kept coming up like, oh, you need a new roof. Oh, you need new electrical. Oh, you need a new water heater. Like all of these things that were not on the inspection, that were not talked about with the contractor that required tens of thousands of dollars. And it was built in 1900. So like the foundation was also messed up. There were just so many things where like we, you know, over the next five years, we don't want to have to like deal with tenants, you know, potentially like the roof caving in, you know, just stuff like that, that we'd rather just sell it. So we came up with that decision to sell it. And and we ended up just breaking even on it. We should have made money from it, but we just had, we had to hire, fire one contractor, do more holding costs, find another contractor, fire that contractor, and then have another one come in to fix all of those. And then have a real estate agent come in and then help with a bunch of things that that third one messed up. So it's just, it's been a little bit of a soap opera. It sounds like. So that was, so when you had to fire your contractor, what was the situation and how did you have that conversation? Well, thankfully my partner, Brad, he's, he's the guy on the phone. Everyone loves Brad. He's just the people person. And I'm kind of like behind the computer person and do all like the analytics and the operations and stuff. And then he deals and manages with all the contractors. So he's learned a lot about like leadership and management, like dealing with people and people skills. So that I think it was to that point too, that we pushed the contractor way too hard past his abilities because maybe he just would have been a good like handyman or something which I don't even think he would because all of our like just like shelves have fallen down on one of the properties. Like just, (laughs) you know, just little, they can't even like put a shelf up. So, and so much that I think he just ended up like quitting kind of, you know, so it was very mutual and he was just too, way too stressed and overwhelmed. So it was kind of mutual. Gotcha. And the other one was that way too. And what I realized too, through this is like, I, we are never going to lower our standards because a contractor can't meet them. We should have fired these people a long time ago. So we learned that mistake too. Of yeah. Firing them way before. Cause you no. actually, it turned out it was just worth, we lost way more money by not firing them earlier and finding like a yeah. better one. I think setting expectations with your contractor is so critically important. And I do understand if you going back to your comment, like we felt like frauds, I do understand if you're new and you've never done a rehab, it can be difficult to set those expectations with your contractor because candidly in your mind, you're thinking, you know, he knows, he or she knows more than I do. I'm going to be looking for them to tell me what to expect. Yes. Instead of these are our quality standards. These are our communication standards. These are our timing and budget expectations and making sure everybody is aligned in principle and in writing before you begin. You know, I definitely understand the challenges of that. If you've never done it before, I was going to say, I'm assuming you would if you were to hire another contractor, you would have a different type of conversation with them right now. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. Cause we have the confidence now and we have, you yeah. know, to be able to set this, those expectations very clearly because I mean, we even flew out there and we fixed all the work ourselves and we still didn't fire him. And I, and I don't know why we didn't. It's just, you think you're going to be, losing money by firing him, but you're actually losing money by keeping him or her. Yeah. I'm curious if, you you know, if you were vetting a contractor today, what types of questions would you be asking? Yeah, I would. Well, first of all, I think the most important thing is to get references. So I would probably ask for references first and I would follow up on those references And then I just asked how they do like the payments because thankfully we never, sometimes you get in that game where you, you pay someone and, and, and it just becomes like this rabbit hole where you're just like trying to catch up or whatever. But 
how their pay structure works and like their deposit required because we never ever are going to pay someone before they complete the job to like our satisfaction. So even if they completed it, but it's not to the standards, like we will not pay them. Right. Let's talk about that for a hot minute because I think that draw schedule is really, really important. You know, I see a lot of folks falling victim to contractors, again, maybe uh, feeling like they have the upper hand and saying, oh, I'm going to require 50% of the total project up front or, you know, having mandates on the project from a payment perspective. I think when you've got the confidence to say, hey, this is the draw schedule that I am accustomed to. How do you feel about that? To have the confidence to also say, I'm sorry, but I, you know, I don't pay for work before it's completed. You need materials. Awesome. Great. Let's get you materials. I need a receipt or I will purchase the materials personally. And if we need to make, you know, weekly draw payments, daily draw payments, whatever the case might be, but that work has got to be completed to my satisfaction before, you know, money exchanges. I think that's a really important conversation to have with your contractor. Yeah. That's extremely important. That and references are probably like most important to me. And honestly, just knowing if they have a truck. I mean, the one that <laughs> he was a contractor and he had a minivan and then he like put our refrigerator on its side, which you're never supposed to do, into the back of his minivan and it's like falling out. And I told Brad, I'm like, that is a red flag for me. If, a, if he says he's a contractor, he should have a truck and he should have a nice truck and they should have stuff that's nice. They should have like it clean. Um, Yeah. Also a big thing for me too is knowing how they clean up at the end of the day. If, if a contractor leaves his workstation at the end of the day, every single day, a mess, red flag. I'll bring, we'll bring it up once or twice. And if they do it again, like probably going to get fired. So why is that a red flag for you? Well, cause we realize of working with, the good ones that do the quality work, that do the work that you don't have to hire someone to fix, they clean up their sites and they're organized. And the ones that don't, you have leaks. You have things that people have to open up drywall to fix. So if they aren't organized on the outside or there's like cosmetic stuff that they can't do well, imagine what's like behind the drywall. Great piece of advice for sure. I want to go back to your comment about checking references because I also feel like that is really, really important. And, you know, it's very easy if we think about the concept of references, it's very easy for a contractor to go to, you know, their their favorite clients or their best buddies and say, hey, will you be a reference for me? Chances are, those people are going to sing their praises, right? And so I think it's really important when you are checking references to be asking the right questions to uncover where this contractor's weaknesses are because they were, they're automatically going to share their strengths. I was going to say, do you agree with that? And what types of questions do you typically ask when you call a reference? Yeah, well... So now at this point, I, we would definitely call them and we probably just ask about like, how long have you known this person? How, how many jobs has he or she done for you? And how are their subcontractors? Because a huge thing too, is just the, the subcontractors are not hiring the right people. So, and yeah. that's a leadership thing on the contractor. Um, and then was the contractor there on a daily basis? Because there's a lot of times where the contractor won't be there for weeks. And if you're out of state, And even if you're FaceTiming him or her and you call them on the phone, they could be lying to you and they could not see the site for like weeks. So that's a huge one. But we will never do another out-of-state project without flying out to go see the references or meet them in person or to go see the previous work. So that's how we're going to do business from now on is like literally flying out to see the work. Yeah. Because the work good on pictures, but then when you actually see it in person. Yeah. Amen to that. I mean, to your point, and I love 
the concept of if you are either rehabbing from afar or locally, you know, obviously asking for pictures is great, but being able to see their work firsthand is a game changer because you can see the finite details that are not apparent in photos. Uh, so I love that you, you are, you know, putting that into your go forward plan. I'm, you know, I'm also curious for me personally, I've been able to knock on wood, be able to source really great contractors through referrals. Have you ever utilized referrals to source contractors for your rehabs? Yeah. So all of our San Diego ones are all referrals and we're going to be, so the one for the ocean beach, that was a referral through our a military investment network. And I mean, these guys worked on townhomes in Coronado and we saw them. And then these investors are like, you know, all they do is real estate investing. So we knew that was a legit referral. So we didn't need to go like deep into that. Like that's someone we trusted the investor that does really great work. We're like, we fully trust you because you've already done these, you know, beautiful townhomes in Coronado and he's, you know, saying your praises and he did other people's too. So we had like multiple referrals for that one. And then same for, so we, we can get us later, but we used a HELOC and we bought, and right now I'm sitting in another fixer upper because we're about to do it again in North Park. And we're doing a, yeah, full rehab on this home, but we're also building ADUs in the back and then who we're using for part of that is, you know, probably our ocean beach contractor. And then since we've been in this for a couple of years, we go to a lot of meetups and we have like our like core, you know, group of real estate investors around. We're still, you know, still going out there and doing more meetups and stuff. But through our real estate agent who we met through our military network, we're going to use his guy for, you know, probably some like ADU things. And we physically have gone and seen all of the work he does. And he has done like multiple projects for multiple people. So that's like the full trust is there. Yeah. I love, love, love that you're also tapping into your local fellow real estate investors. You know, I personally have found such great relationships I've been able to develop with my local real estate investing community. And quite candidly, you know, our local RIA is also national. You know, I attend meetings every Friday that are, you know, have people on it from all around the country. But there is something very valuable in being able to, number one, see people on a regular basis, have discussions, you know, that allow you to get a behind the scenes look into, you know, the contractors that they use, what is their investing approach and strategy and how has it been successful for them? Tapping into other people's creative ideas. We all have our own strengths and weaknesses and our own, you know, experiences and being able to learn from other people, I think is so incredibly important. And I think it's really easy for short-term rental owners to get plugged into other short-term rental communities. And let me tell you, I have those communities. There's, I'm not trying to dissuade someone from tapping into the knowledge base of a short-term rental community. But I also think that the real estate investing community is a really important part of the equation. What's it, what are your thoughts? Oh yeah, huge. We go to real estate meetups all the time. We try to go to like as many as we can. Just even like seeing stuff on Instagram, like, okay, that looks awesome. Let's go there. So it's been sometimes on like the bigger ones, I'll I'll go by myself and usually don't talk to anyone. Brad's the talker, like <laughs> he's working. But we go to our our real estate agent. He does one like monthly or sometimes like every other week. And we always meet new people there. We always get ideas. We always get contacts. Like, for example, I didn't even know this was a thing, but he spoke at one of our real estate meetups that our real estate agent does. It's a He's an appraiser, but he's a consultant. So he can look at your plot of land and tell you what type of ADU you should build, depending on the comps around the area and the zoning and all that kind of stuff. Like, you know, meeting someone like that, I didn't even know that job existed. So that was interesting. So you'll just meet people like that. Or I just got a text from them about potentially, you know, designing and co-hosting a thing right now, actually. So. Yeah. 
And yeah. you, you can find mutually beneficial relationships and synergies with other people. Obviously, with your experience in the short-term rental space, I am fairly certain that there are people at your real estate meetups that are intrigued by short-term rentals and have never done it before and may need help, right? So it can be also be a really strong way to grow your business. Oh, yeah. So I think it's essential because right now, like I don't have a website yet. I just only do stuff through Instagram and this real estate meetup. And that's how, like how I'm getting clients for like you design or co-hosting or something. So, yeah. Okay. So out of your rehab experiences, what would you say has been your biggest challenge you've encountered and how did you navigate that challenge? The biggest challenge. I I think the out-of-state rehabs were definitely the biggest challenge. And the biggest challenge in those were managing the contractor and finding the right contractor and managing the budget. So because it was all kind of a mess. And there were so many nights where I would I would just cry. And it's okay. It's okay to cry. You just like there's the highs and lows of real estate where at noon you feel freaking amazing. You're like, oh my God. And then like 5 p.m. you get a text and you're like, you're crying. You're like, what is that? You know, the highs and lows of it. So I think the leadership points and the confidence point and approaching problems from like multiple aspects, especially when it comes to like people and management has been like the biggest learning point for us because we're never going to make those mistakes again that we did in like those three rehabs with that contractor. Yeah. We see a red flag with a contractor or like potential employee, like we're not going to, we're going to cut it right there. So. Absolutely. You know, I always say not that you don't want to give people feedback, but I always teach the folks in my mentoring program that we want to hire slowly and fire fast, right? Because if they are not the right fit for your business, they will become toxic to your business. And so I think that's that's great advice. So we've, we've talked about some of those challenges. If someone is listening and they may have before this episode been afraid of rehabbing, maybe, maybe they're even more afraid now. I don't know. <laughs> what would your piece of advice be to them? So Brad, my partner, he always, he likes the quote of like jumping out of the airplane and then like, you know, figuring out the parachute, like on the way down. And that's what he wanted to do. And that's what we wanted to do because yeah, we haven't, thankfully we haven't lost that much money yet with the rehabs, but it could have gone horribly wrong and we could have lost way more money. But I think just doing the actual experience, I mean, there's people that pay, you know, 20 grand to do those courses or something like that. You're going to learn a lot and you know, those amazing courses, but like actually doing it, even if we lost 20 or 30 grand, that's just like a lesson. That's just, and then now you're just smooth sailing ahead of time. Cause you know where all the problems are going to come up and you're able to figure it out ahead of time or like on the spot and you're going to make money. So, yeah, no, I think that's a really important piece of advice. And I love that because Again, I always say you can read a book about swimming all day long. My mentor says that. You can be you can read a book about swimming all day long, but until you jump in a pool, you don't really know what you're doing, right? And so everyone starts somewhere. I definitely feel uh, very blessed to you know have surrounded myself with great educators and mentors in my experience. I always say to people, I still learn stuff each and every day, as do you, I'm sure. But I think one of my biggest key takeaways is to not let your fear guide your actions. Instead, understand your fear, be aware of your fear, and tap into people who can help me get this rehab project done, who can help guide me instead of just putting it off and saying, oh gosh, I don't know how to do this. So I'm going to wait. Yeah. I love that. Okay. Aubrey, I want to move to the lightning round. So what I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to ask you to answer these questions with the very first thing that comes to mind. First question.
question is, where is your favorite place to vacation? Hawaii. Ooh. Do you have a favorite island? Honestly, I've only been to Oahu, but I've flown over. What's the one with the K? Kauai. I've flown over the helicopter so many times. We never landed there. So that's on my bucket list to do the, the hike over there. Yeah. Amazing. I, my honeymoon was in Hawaii and it's gorgeous. And next year, my husband and I are planning on going back for our 30th anniversary. So that would be a fun trip. And I've never been to Kauai either. We've been to Oahu and Maui. And I've been there like four times and I keep going back to the same island. So I need to branch out a little bit. Okay. What's one place you've never been that you want to visit? Bali. Oh, I've heard that's gorgeous. Yeah. Which actually not thank you for COVID, but we, we never were into real estate. So during 2020, I was just like planning trips to like go to Bali or like all this stuff. Cause we were like traveling the world together, you know? And then because COVID hit, we're like, we can't travel anywhere. So then we end up buying a house. And then now this is like, you know, just skyrocketed our net worth and our you know next career path and everything. A blessing in disguise. Yeah. All right. What's one thing you know now that you wished you knew when you were starting out in the world of short-term rentals? Hmm. Let me, <laughs> I'm trying to think. Oh my gosh. Ooh. You know what? I thought I would really dislike hosting and the guest communication, but I actually really enjoy it. I thought I would really not like it. Let me, let me ask you about that. Why did you think you wouldn't enjoy it? Because you just hear from other people how they just really don't like talking to guests or interacting with other people or dealing with other people. But then I, I've like, I'm, I do not think I like hosting and I like love it. You love it. Yeah, I love it. That's, that's so fun to find those hidden surprises. Super cool. All right. What is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Man, these are tough questions. I think just, this is just like general life advice. It's just like never going to bed angry or upset. That's great advice. And then waking up grateful. Oh, I love waking up grateful. I love that. So I have a sign by my coffee pot that says start each day with a grateful heart. And besides brushing my teeth and going to the bathroom, I do start each day with a cup of coffee. And I love that. It's just, you know, it really, really shapes your mindset when that's the first thing you see every morning. I love waking up with a grateful heart. Speaking of grateful, what's one thing and or person that you are grateful for today? That would be my partner, Brad. He's just the best. So we're like a tag team. And when we did our real estate six-month course, they always said like, you know, the husband and wife or like the partners, they are able to accelerate way quicker with real estate because there's two of us. So we're just able to bang out everything just so quickly. And he's just like my go-to and he's just the best. And it's cool when we can sit down at the end of the day and talk about our life goals and our vision every single day, you know, and we're aligned, which is crazy. So we did a vision board and I, I did mine separately and he did his separately. And then we came together and they had the exact same images on it. OMG. I know. So we're really aligned. <laughs> yeah. I want to talk to Brad. I want to know if he got a sneak peek at your vision board, because that's pretty amazing. No, Aubrey, this has been so fun. You know, I think it's important to have conversations like this where we're sharing the good, the bad, and the ugly. This is not all rainbows and sunshines. And I think exposing challenges of rehabbing and, you know, sharing your experience is only going to help someone else. So thank you for, you know, being open and, and willing to share with us today. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for having me. And Aubrey, if folks want to learn more about you or follow you online, what is the best place for them to find you? Yeah, I'm on Instagram. So I have my personal, which I do a lot of real estate stuff on there is mary.aubrey. And then I also have my 
Airbnb page, which is Salt and Sky Lodging Co. And that's where we are have a couple properties up on there and then hopefully acquiring some new ones soon. So yeah, I love it. Cannot wait to see the next ones. Thanks again, Aubrey. Thank you so much. Now, before you go, I want to give a huge shout out to the amazing women inside the Female Short-Term Rental Investors Facebook group, the best Facebook group on the planet, if you ask me. And just yesterday, Kelly Sweeney posted in the group, and she says, I'm wondering if anyone knows if you sell an investment property that was initially your primary residence for two years. Do you pay capital gains on it? We are interested in buying our first short-term rental and may sell one of our long-term rentals to do so, and we're wondering. We have a call into our tax accountant, but of course I'm impatient since our dream house just came on the market. And we had 14 ladies in the last day jump in and share feedback. Natalie Kalodage says, and Natalie, I am so sorry if I'm mispronouncing your name, uh, but Natalie said, hey, tax professional here. If you lived in it, any two of the most recent five years, you can sell it tax-free up to the 121 gain exclusion of $500,000 married. You'd still repay depreciation. If it's been a rental for longer than the most recent three years, it's too late and you lost the 121 exclusion and your only tax-free option would be doing a 1031 exchange. Natalie, that is so beautifully summed up. And I want to say I am not a tax professional, uh, but really, really appreciate you sharing your wisdom and insights with the ladies inside the group. All right, that wraps up today's episode. I hope you have an amazing day and an amazing week ahead, and I will look forward to seeing you soon. Okay, sister, are you ready to start making your short-term rental dreams a reality, but feeling lost, stuck, or just overwhelmed? Here's what I know for sure. You deserve everything you're dreaming of, and you deserve to get it with ease, support, and joy. So here's what I'd like you to do. Go to stacystjohn.com slash strwebinar and watch my free masterclass where you will get the scoop on how to leave your W-2 and start building your dream life with five simple steps. If you're ready to have more time to spend with friends and family doing the things you love, adding a ton of zeros to your bank balance and start living your short-term rental dream, you need to watch this masterclass. Head over to stacystjohn.com slash strwebinar right now to start watching. That's stacystjohn.com slash strwebinar and I will see you there.